Well, over the years, I've had a number of conversations at this time of the year with people who have said something like this to me. They said, uh, I've decided that this was the year that I'm going to read the entire Bible. And I got a good start, and I read Genesis and Exodus, and I enjoyed them. And then they usually say, well, not all that stuff in Exodus about building the tabernacle. But otherwise, it was all good until I got to Leviticus. And then things really bogged down when I hit all those rules for things like taking care of the sores on your head and getting rid of the mildew in your house. And they'll say, and the truth is I lost steam and I haven't gotten back to my Bible for a couple of weeks. Well, I get that. Because there's almost nothing in the details of the rules and regulations related to what is called clean and unclean things that we find in this part of the Bible in Leviticus that seem relevant to our 21st century middle American lives. And I too have wondered why uh, it was important for us to know that God told the Jews not to eat certain insects or shrimp. Well, today, the goal is to make some sense of these ancient rules. Not only to make some sense of them, but to see how these rules were intended to fit into God's desire to do all that he could to have an intimate relationship with his people. And my hope, my hope is that we'll all see how these rules were part of making it possible for us to return to what God initially intended for us. Or as we've been saying in each week of the series, making it possible for us to return to, England, to Eden. So that's where we're going. But before we try to figure this one out, I think I need to pray. So can you pray with me before we get into this? Father, it's a difficult subject. Um, my mind is reeling with all that I've left out. But I am trusting that your spirit's been working in my heart up to this moment to have the right things to say. I pray that um, everything that I say will be used by your spirit to bring honor and glory to your son. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. The cleanliness laws are found in Leviticus chapters 11 to 16. So you can all turn to that passage, please. It's on page 92 in the House Bible. And while you're looking that up, I just want to say um, a welcome to everybody at Fishers and a welcome to everybody at North Indy. And for those of you who are watching online right now, we're glad you're with us. And you'll need the the text in front of you, so in some manner have Leviticus 11 in front of you. But before we start uh, looking at these regulations, the first thing we need to do is we need to put all of these cleanliness laws into their big historical context. The clean and unclean regulations that we find in Leviticus were given to the Jewish people soon after they made their escape from slavery in Egypt. So happens right after it, just a little while after it, they get all these rules. And many scholars believe that this could have been as, much, as many as a million people who escaped out of Egypt. And so this is a vast assembly of people, and they're on their way through the wilderness, and they're headed for the promised land. 
But, and this is a really important detail, the Jews weren't simply traveling through the wilderness and on to their promised land by their own devices. No, they were literally being led by God. And I, I mean this in liter literally, God was leading them. Listen to how the book of Exodus ends. These are the last couple of verses in the book of Exodus. It says, the cloud, and you have to remember that that cloud is the physical presence of God among the Jews. He showed up in a cloud, and it says, the cloud covered the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, whenever the cloud lifted from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out on their journey following it. But if the cloud did not rise, they remained where they were until it lifted. The cloud of the Lord hovered over the tabernacle during the day, and at night fire glowed inside the cloud so the whole family of Israel could see it. This continued throughout all their journeys. Now you can see from the way that Exodus ends, these verses tell us that God was both leading the Israelites but he was also living right in the middle of them. He was present right in the middle of them. And it says he wanted to be in the middle, as this, these verses said, with the whole family of Israel. In fact, the reason that almost a third of the book of Exodus tells us about the design instructions for building the tabernacle is related directly to God wanting to live in the middle of the whole family of Israel. The word tabernacle, even though it's, it sounds so religious, the tabernacle. You know what that means in Hebrew? A tent. A tent. That's all it means. Simply a tent. And all of the instructions for building the tabernacle were just instructions for building a tent for God. Now, all the Jewish people, as they were traveling through the wilderness on the way to the promised land, were living in tents, and God wanted his own tent right in the middle of everybody. And he also, there are also instructions along with building this tent that's said to make furniture and washing bowls and candlesticks to put them in God's tent. And the reason is because these were the same things that the Jews all had in their tents. They all had tables and candlesticks and bowls. God just wanted the same stuff because he was going to what? Live with them. Now, to be sure, what God had the Jews make for him was a bigger tent with fancier things in it. But that tabernacle was still just the tent where God, in the form of a cloud by day and fire by night, was physically present with his people. It was a wonderful thing. This is what God wanted. He wanted to be with his people. It's what the Jews wanted. They wanted their God to be with them. And the cleanliness laws were the means to make it possible for God, who is holy and perfect, to literally live right alongside people who are not, what, holy and perfect. 
These laws created a way of living that made the Jewish people a distinctive nation. That's an important characteristic, a distinctive nation. These laws, will make, they made the Jews stand out from all the other people in the world because these laws continually reminded the Jews that they followed them because God wanted to have an intimate relationship with them. He wanted to live with them. He wanted his people to live in peace and joy and harmony with him and with one another. And so as we start to look at them, I want you to keep this in mind, that these rules were simply more evidence that God's greatest desire was for his people to return to the wonders of Eden, living with God and living well with one another. So, are you ready to start looking at some of the cleanliness laws? You ready? Okay, the cleanliness laws, I didn't get much of a response there, so. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, woohoo. Don't eat shrimp. Okay. The cleanliness laws are, uh, that we find in Leviticus 11 through 16 can divide, be divided into two sections. The first section is called Animals You Can Eat. Okay? And the, that's all of chapter 11. Then the second group, which we find from uh, chapters 12 through 16. Now, it's not titled this, but if I were to have titled it, I would have called it things that might happen to you. But it's always things that make you feel unsure or uneasy or a little embarrassed. And the second group covers uh, specific circumstances like purification after childbirth and skin diseases and contaminated clothing and moldy houses and dealing with bodily discharges. Sounds great, doesn't it? Well, let's look at Leviticus 11. Oh, uh, and this is the section about clean and unclean animals. And before I talk to you about these uh, regulations specifically, I need to tell you that there's absolutely no connection whatsoever between modern zoology and ancient zoology. Um, we think about animals in scientific terms. We divide them by their genus and their species, and we think they act because of their instincts and their genetic imperatives. And I just have to tell you, ancient people didn't think this way at all. They divided the animal kingdom into groupings mostly based on how they moved around. And they also thought, now we still do this with our dogs and cats. We anthropomorphize them and we think that they're actually thinking like we are taught in their minds. They're speaking English and they're making decisions and doing things because they're willfully choosing to do them, even though they aren't. But... They, in the ancient world, they thought the same thing because when they looked at an animal, it looked like that animal was making a decision to do whatever it was doing. So they divided them up by how they move and by how they made certain decisions about life. And they divided up the animal kingdom into these groupings. Herding animals is the first one. They're often referred to as livestock in the Bible. They're animals that walked around on hooves. Okay, any animal that has hooves is a herding animal. All right, then there are the wild animals. Those are primarily animals with paws, but they're, they're big animals, uh, lions, bears, elephants. Can you imagine 
if you didn't see much difference between an elephant and a lion because they all have paws, but that's how they looked at it. And then there are animals that scurry along the ground. Um, there are all sorts of these, and they were all lumped together. Uh, moles, rats, lizards, snakes. They're animals that dart or slither really close to the ground. That's another grouping of animals. Uh, then there are the birds, or they didn't call them birds, they called them flying animals. Um, we'll talk about them in a minute. Then there are insects of all sorts. They divided insects away from the rest of the creatures because insects don't have blood in them. That's for another sermon. How about that? I'll do a sermon on why insects. Never mind. And then uh, finally, there are the creatures that live in the water. All creatures that live in the water. Now, the ancients were able to fit all animals into one of these divisions. And you know what they called that? Science. All right? So let's get back to Leviticus 11.1. 1. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. Of all the land animals, these are the ones you may use for food. You may eat any animal that has completely split hooves and chews the cud. You may not, however, eat the following animals that have split hooves or chew the cud, but not both. I'm going to stop there. Everybody in the ancient world reading this or hearing this would have known that these, were the, these verses are talking about herding animals because herding animals were the only animals that had completely split hooves. Look at me. It's completely split hooves <laughs> and chewed a cud. And, and some of those animals are like oxen, sheep, goats, deer, gazelles, antelope, those animals. Again, these animals all have split hooves and they chew the cud. In other words, the two primary distinctive characteristics of all herding animals is that they what? Have split hooves and chew a cud. And this is what herding animals are supposed to do, and these are the characteristics they're supposed to have. And since these animals are complete, if you will, they are fully a herding animal, you can eat them. All right? But the animals that only have one of these characteristics that herding animals are supposed to have, animals that have split hooves but they don't chew a cud like a pig, or they chew a cud but they don't have split hooves like rabbits and camels, well, these animals, they're part of the herding group but they're not completely herding animals. Do you see what I mean? They don't have the two distinctive characteristics that an animal has to have to be a fully formed herding animal, and so they're unclean. In fact, the primary issue in, decla in declaring any animal clean or unclean comes down to this. Do they conform to the distinctive characteristics of the vast majority of the other animals in their category? Are you following me on this? Okay, I, I mean, I know this is kind of weird, but let, let me repeat that. The primary issue in declaring any animal clean or unclean is this. Do they conform to the distinctive characteristics of the vast majority of the other animals 
in their category. This is why I look at verse 9. It says, of all the marine animals, these are the ones you may use for food. You may eat anything from the water if it has both fins and scales, whether taken from salt water or from the streams. But you must never eat animals from the sea or the rivers that do not have fins or scales. They are detestable to you. Ancient people believed that the vast majority of the creatures that live in the water have what? Fins and scales, and they swim through the water with their fins and their scales. But animals that don't have fins and scales, like sharks and eels and octopus, and creatures that walk around on the bottom of the lake or the ocean like lobsters and crawdads and shrimp, these animals are unclean because they don't conform. They live in water, but they don't have the two characteristics that make you a complete water-living animal, fins and scales. And this is still true when it comes to birds. Um, the vast majority of animals that fly have two wings and two feet. And ancient people believed that the vast majority of the flying animals were also vegetarians, that they ate grains and berries and such. And so all two-winged, flying, two-footed, grain-eating animals were clean, and you could eat them, and you can handle them. They threw bats in with birds. But bats aren't clean. Why are bats not clean? They have four legs. They don't have two legs. They have four legs. So they're not like the vast majority of the animals with two legs that fly. Is this making sense? I mean, I know this is kind of weird and complicated, but it's, and, and also, I mean, there are other birds that have, they've got a lot going for them. They've got two legs and two wings and they fly, but they're birds like eagles and owls. They choose to eat other animals. That's what they thought. They choose to eat them. And so they're not clean because if you're a two-winged, two-footed, flying animal, you don't eat other animals. You eat grains and berries. And so, in fact, any animal that chooses, this is how they're thinking, they choose to eat other animals. So all, almost every wild, all the wild animals, lions, bears, you don't eat those. They're unclean. And an animal, any animal that eats a dead animal, like a rat or a big lizard or a jackal or a hyena, you don't eat them because they're choosing to eat the life of another animal. This is my, okay, now I, the Jews were commanded not to have anything to do with these kind of animals. They weren't supposed to touch the carcass of an animal. They weren't even supposed to touch a pot or a bowl that touched one of these animals. The bottom line with the clean and unclean animals is this. The Jews were called to live with God and with one another in a very distinctive way that showed the rest of the world how God wanted his people to live. And so the Jews weren't supposed to do anything with an animal 
that didn't live according to the way that God made the majority of the animals in a group the way they lived. Is this making sense? Like, God says, you are to be people who are distinctively like this because this is what I want you to be. And so don't have anything to do with any animal that isn't like your, there are other animals like them are supposed to be. Now, again, I know it's strange, but it would have made perfect sense in their world. I suppose we could sum up the reason for these clean and unclean animal laws in this way. There is a way God wants all of his creation to live, especially his people. There is a way of life that leads to peace and harmony, harmony with God and with other people. And the Jews, by only eating clean, clean animals, mirrored that truth. But there is a very specific, distinctive way of living. It is a good way that looks like the perfection of Eden. And that's what God wants for all people. And his people show that to the world. Okay? Now, the next bunch of laws are cleanliness laws, and they're all related to the circumstances of life. And I want to begin by stating that none of the circumstances, like having a baby or getting a skin rash, or finding mildew in your home, have anything to do with morality. Sin was not the issue in these regulations. The truth is that all cleanliness rules from here on out in the, in the book of Leviticus relate to things that just happen to people. Turn over to Leviticus 13, for example. 13.1 says, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, if anyone has a swelling or a rash or discolored skin that might develop into a serious skin disease, that person must be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons. The priest will examine the affected area of the skin, and if the hair in the infected area has turned white and the problem appears to be more than skin deep, it is a serious skin disease, and the, the priest who examines it must pronounce the person ceremonially unclean. Now, Skin rashes happen. Sin is not the cause of a skin rash. In fact, all of the circumstances listed in the next five chapters of Leviticus, the fluids that come with childbirth, serious skin diseases, contaminated clothing, mold in your house, and various bodily discharges, these are simply things that happen to people. Sometimes they happen out of nowhere. Suddenly you have this problem. And sometimes some of these things occur with great regularity, but they all have in this in common. These are all things that we don't necessarily want to talk about with anybody. They're private. They can be embarrassing. They can make us feel unsure about ourselves. We could feel confused about what's happening to me. Why do I have this going on? And they can even make us feel ashamed. And you can be certain when the ancient Jewish people had these sorts of things happening to them, they certainly didn't feel worthy of being in God's presence in the tabernacle. They just didn't. I'm certain that any man who realized he had a seeping boil didn't feel like going to the tabernacle and being in the literal presence of God and who knows how many other people all around him. I'm going to state something about uh, these laws that is rarely said about the cleanliness laws. 
These laws were not given primarily to let people know when they were unclean. Most people could tell right away that there was something unclean about what was happening to them. They could just tell. The primary reason for having these laws was not to let people know that they found themselves in an unclean circumstance. It was to let them know that when they did, there is a pathway back to cleanliness. There is a pathway back to cleanliness. When we are reading through these regulations, we shouldn't put our primary focus on the situations that people might find themselves in. We should focus on the reality of the remedies, the ways to find cleansing, because the cleansing rituals were God's way of saying this to them. Okay, this embarrassing thing may be happening to you, and you may have to deal with it for a while. It's going to be embarrassing. It's unwelcomed, and it may even isolate you from other people for a little bit. But I've made a way for you to find cleansing, and I am waiting to welcome you back into my tent, into my home. I've made a way for you to leave your confusions and your shame behind and return to me. Now, granted, some of these cleansing rituals are really complicated and confusing. If you want to be overwhelmed by ritual complications, read the long and arduous process of what a man had to go through if he got healed when his serious skin disease finally healed. It takes 14 verses of chapter 14, and it involves two birds, two lambs, six quarts of flour, a cup of olive oil, a cedar stick, some scarlet yarn, a hyssop branch, a pot of water, washing all your clothes and shaving all the hair off of your head, including your beard and your eyebrows. But let me tell you, the result of somebody being finally healed of a skin disease and then going through this arduous process was this, he could live with God. He could walk right into God's tent without any shame or embarrassment. That's way cooler than just saying, oh, you're clean. No, he's more than clean. He's walking with God. Now, I think it's important to stop right here for just one second. Now that we're talking about somebody being declared clean, and tell you that I feel the traditional translations of the Hebrew word tahor, which is clean, and the Hebrew word tameh, which is unclean, is somewhat unfortunate. The concept of tahor is that something is ready to be used for sacred purposes. In other words, a better way to say it would be this. When someone is clean, it really just means that they are, what, ready to be with God and to be used by God. And the concept of tameh, it's simply, simply stating that someone or something is not ready to be used for sacred purposes. It's just ordinary. It's not ready to be with God. Now, I know that usually when I hear the word clean, my first inclination is to think righteous. And when I hear the word unclean, my thoughts go to sinful. But this isn't the case. The bottom line is that when a man who had a serious skin disease is declared by the priest to be clean, the priest is really saying, and now you're ready to be with God and to be used by God for his purposes, 
and boom, is that special or what? Isn't that what we all want? Now, of course, the Jewish people, being the sorts of people we all are, didn't choose to focus on the liberating aspects of God's cleanliness laws, but instead they eventually focused on doing everything they could to avoid being unclean. Uh, the law did say that if you touch something or someone that was unclean, that their uncleanliness extended to you. This is true. But what began to happen was that the Jews, especially the very religious Jews, began avoiding others out of religious self-preservation. In fact, by Jesus' day, things related to cleanliness were really out of hand. No one was focusing on the fact that the process of cleansing was purposed to lead people back to God. The primary focus of everyone, at least everybody who was a serious Jew, was how can we avoid the possibility of having anyone else's uncleanliness ruin my holiness. For instance, we know that in Jesus' day, most rabbis had nothing to do with women. They never came into contact with a woman. And you know why? Because you never know when that woman might be having her period. And if she happened to brush against you during her time of the month, or if you touched a jar that she'd touched, or you sat on a seat that she'd sat on, why, you'd have to wash all your clothes, and you couldn't go to the temple, and you'd have to go through all of the cleansing rituals related to menstrual uncleanliness, and no self-respecting religious rabbi would ever want to take those kind of chances, and so they made lots of rules that kept women in their place so they didn't have to worry about messing with them. A rabbi Jesus would have nothing to do with that sort of thing. Jesus, rather than doing his best to avoid other people, out of fear that he might take on their uncleanliness, he reached out his hand and he touched the lepers. Every time you hear, see Jesus healing somebody and you notice that he's reaching out and touching, he is doing what no self-respecting rabbi would have done. Why, he even allowed himself to be touched by a woman who'd been bleeding continually for 12 years. You talk about unclean, and he lets her touch him, and he makes sure everybody knows that she touched him. He even took the hands of dead people the most unclean thing a rabbi could ever have touched, and he gave them life. I said earlier that being uh, unclean wasn't a moral issue. It was a physical issue. But by Jesus' day, the re Jewish religious leaders had turned all physical maladies into moral issues. They'd gone to great lengths to create a whole intricate system that linked specific sins to physical circumstances. So if somebody had a skin disease, they could say, you've been gossiping. But Jesus rejected all of this as well. When he reached out and he healed people, he also made certain that everyone knew that their sins had been forgiven. Watch for that when Jesus heals people. Your sins have been forgiven. And he not only made them clean so that they could participate in the, the national worship services that went on at the temple, 
but he also made them ready to be with God and to be used by God. You know, his death and resurrection made it possible for us to live our entire lives ready to be used by God and ready to be with God. Jesus made it possible for us to become God's tent. He moves right inside of us and he lives in us right in the middle of our lives. So here's my advice. If you find yourself struggling with reading this part of the Bible, if these long passages about scabby sores and mildewed clothing cause you to lose steam, just keep in mind that it would have been good news to the Jews to know that God had made a way for them to return to him. And then remind yourself that ultimately the Bible is telling you the good news that Jesus made it possible for everyone, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, everybody, all of us. Jesus made it possible for everyone to return to God and be clean for eternity. The entire arc of the scripture is that is this, Jesus, by taking our unholiness on himself, made it possible for us to live the life we were created to live. Jesus, by taking on our uncleanliness, made it possible for us to live today in the literal presence of God. Jesus made it possible for us to live in distinctive ways that reflect all that God intended for us when he first made mankind. Jesus made it possible for us as much as it is possible on this side of, the etern of eternity to what? Return to Eden.